Good morning, everybody. So good to be together. I, one of the things I'm really grateful for is for our awesome worship team. Um, I don't know, it just lifts my spirit. And uh, this morning, things were not quite going 100% and a little bit running a bit late and technology not playing along and so on and so on. And, you know, when you run in here and your heart is kind of a little bit not quite settled, um, to have a worship team to, to lead us into worship together, it really lifts my spirit. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Leon, Danny, uh, Charles, Bill, Mulligan, uh, and whoever else occasionally joins in. I really appreciate that. <clears throat> um, a month ago, I talked about, uh, as we work our way through First John, I talk about live the life we proclaim. And that scripture in First uh, John chapter 3, verse 18, that says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And we talked a bit about how you know, love is not just something we speak. It's not just a feeling. It is really the way we live our life. And that's the call from John here. It's like, you know, loving is not just saying things, it's how we live our life. And we have an individual responsibility and accountability to God. And as a church, we have a collective accountability before God. As we looked at seven churches in Revelation where Jesus said, I know your deeds, I know what you're doing, I know what you're busy with. Our deeds do matter. And I think a natural kind of flow and consequence of reading a scripture like that and being called to evaluate our lives and how we live and the kind of things we do and say, um, I guess it depends who you are, where you're at, but scriptures like this can stir up our conscience and cause a variety of uh, reactions and responses. Um, now, often when I preach or share a message, uh, a lot of it is for myself. It's a bit like my own quiet time and reflecting and it's like, okay, there are some things I need to work on and grow in and things I'm grateful for and things I'm encouraged by and so on and so on. And certainly even thinking about that and talking through that sermon for myself, I'm like, hmm, there are a few things I, I, need, I definitely want to work on. There are some things I don't feel so great about, you know, where I say things, but I don't quite actually do it. And good thing is, John recognizes that. And we don't look at these scriptures in isolation. It's all one long letter. So John follows through after this with uh, verse 19 and verse 21, which is our topic and theme scripture for today. He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If you like titles, um, sermon title for today is Set Your Heart at Rest. Have you ever had something weighing on your heart? You know that feeling of um, that your heart is not quite at rest? that, um, you know, there's something heavy. You don't quite sleep well at night. Maybe it's just me, but I definitely had that experience. It's, um, you know, when something bothers you, and it's not something bothering you like, oh, did I remember to switch off the oven? Or not that kind of bother, but the kind of bother of, I really shouldn't have said that to that person, or, or I shouldn't have said it in that way, or, hmm, 
man, I really should not have done that. And it bothers us and it weighs on our heart. What is that thing that weighs on our heart? The scripture here is from the NIV translation. There's another translation, the, the New English translation, that translates it in a different way. And it says, and by this we will know that we are of the truth and will convince our conscience in his presence. That if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and knows all things. So this is, a, it's a, also an interesting things. We have different translations that kind of seem to mean different things. One says your heart and the other one says your conscience. And then people end up in debates it's like, oh, it's this one. No, it's that one. I've kind of settled for myself when I find these different translations that it's not either or, but both and. And that kind of enriches our understanding. And if we think about it like that, then what we actually notice is that our heart and our conscience is closely connected. It's basically sometimes the same thing. And that is why the, the translators sometimes translate it with heart and our conscience. So when we have that feeling at night, you know, when you can't sleep and something's weighing on your heart, that weighing on our heart is called our conscience. How else do we know it? You know, there's that little voice within. Or as the cartoon sometimes depicted, you know, the little angel on your shoulder <laughs> that speaks to you. You do something and in the cartoon say, oh, don't do that. And then there's a little devil on the other shoulder and says, oh yeah, do it, go, go, do it, do it. Um, that's our conscience. It's our heart. And this word conscience, where does it come from? It comes from Latin, conscientia, which is with, which means with knowledge. Con means with, and scientia, with what I know. Like science, that's where science comes from. So with knowing, the meaning is really, it's about an internal awareness of a moral standard. Uh, an internal awareness of our motives, what drives us, a consciousness of our own actions. So conscience is by knowing. I know something, and based on that, I either do or I don't do something, or I say something or I don't say something. And when something weighs on our conscience, it is because I know A is right, and then I go and do B. And then afterwards, I think, that little voice, that conscience says, I knew A was right, but I did B. Mm, I wonder how I feel about that. And how does that feel? What does that internal awareness feel like? What do you think? How does it feel? Has anybody experienced that? That feeling of, I know A is right, but I did B. Or I know A is right, but I said B. Anybody wants to share? How does it feel like? Have you experienced that feeling? Is it just me? <laughs> Am I the only one? <laughs> Yes, Leon. Uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. For me, it keeps me awake at night sometimes. And generally during the day, it doesn't bother me until I, you know, lying in bed, it's all quiet, then your mind starts wandering, and then, then, it, then, then it comes to me. What else? Who else has a feeling? How does it feel? That, that, you know, yes. That's your stomach. How interesting. Yeah. It yeah, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, you, you kind of feel it inside. It's like, am I hungry? No. Did I eat a bad pie or something at the motorway station? No. <laughs> oh, it must be my conscience bothering me. It definitely, it definitely evokes some kind of physical feeling sometimes in us. Sometimes you just 
goes around and around and around in our mind. Or it kind of maybe depresses us a bit and we walk around feeling like you're not quite ourselves. Or is that feeling of like, I can't look him in the eye or I can't look her in the eye because I know, you know, something's on my conscience between us. Sometimes it's a relational thing. That is conscience. That is what the scripture talks about when it talks about our conscience that condemns us or it does not condemn us. How we can have our heart or our conscience at rest or at peace before God. Now, what's interesting, this thing called our conscience, is it just a Christian thing? What do you think? Is it unique to Christianity? No? Does anybody know the Gitas or the Quran or any of those other scriptures? The Quran talks about our conscience, the, the, the Muslim scriptures. The Hindu scriptures, the Gitas, talks a lot about the conscience. Buddhism, Buddha talked about our conscience. Judaism, Zoroastrianism, you can list the religions. In fact, every religion that I could find in the research that I did had some in the scriptures something to say about our conscience. So it's definitely not just a Christian thing. It is a spiritual thing. But is it just a spiritual thing? What about atheists? Do atheists have a conscience? What do you think? George reckons, yeah, I see a yes there. <laughs> yeah? What about the world? You know the world out there? You see, do people have conscience even if they don't believe in any God at all? In fact, when the United Nations got together and they decided, let's draw up a declaration of human rights. This is how they started. Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards another in a spirit of brotherhood. That's actually an amazing statement. Mm. Got nothing to do with faith or religion or Christianity or anything. When the leaders of the world, 168 nations, I think, are now in the United Nations, came together and said, what is, what is it that, that makes us human, that draws us together? What is something that is common that we think should be in a declaration of human rights right up front, first thing, first paragraph? It is this concept of being endowed with conscience. It recognizes the fact that every human being has a conscience. And that is interesting. You don't have to be a Christian for your conscience to bother you. You don't have to be a Muslim or a Hindu. You can be an atheist and your conscience can still bother you. And it's interesting. There's been some, some very little, but some scientific research into this. And the scientists speculate. And there's evolutionary biologists that speculate. And some say, oh, well, it became, it's kind of evolutionary as humans evolved to live together in community. The only way a community can function is, you know, for them to develop a conscience. Otherwise, they would keep on exploiting and killing each other. Well, we still have a lot to evolve, I look at myself <laughs> in the world, if that's the measure. Um, some say it's actually genetic. And they, and they study children, for example, they study uh, twins that are separated at birth and how their behavior is different in different, growing up in different environments, etc. And they reckon, no, it's genetic. It's imprinted on us. And that's basically what God says in the Bible. He says, I have given you a conscience. As a human being, 
And this concept of a conscience that's got nothing to do with faith is so deeply implanted. The, U the United Nations says it's endowed. We are endowed. What's endowment is something given to us. It's actually a gift. If we think about that. Now, when last did you have a gift that bothered you? <laughs> well, you know, when you get some socks and handkerchiefs for Christmas, maybe that bothers you. It's like, oh, not more socks. <laughs> but generally, a gift is something special. It's like, well, God has given me a conscience for a reason. And then he just gave me a conscience to make me burdened and make me feel guilty and keep me awake at night and, you know, to, to hurt my stomach and make my head spin. And, you know, is that the only reason? I don't think so. So, very briefly, this word that's translated as conscience is all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's two Hebrew words um, that are translated as conscience. Uh, the one is, uh, is tone, which is, it also means integrity and innocence. And integrity means acting according to your values and beliefs. And the other one is layer, which is the heart which is why that one scripture translates as our heart at rest, the heart, the inner part. In the Greek, the, the difficult one is uh, sunidesis, which literally means conscience, but it is a very complicated word. It, it is distinguishing between what is morally good and bad and prompting you to do what is good and avoid the bad. Commending the good, condemning the bad. That's one Greek word, sunidesis. And the other one is cardia, like cardiologist. It's heart, also sometimes translated as conscience. Why? Because it's not just a physical heart. It's kind of we feel it in here when our conscience weighs on us, but it's an emotional feeling. It is, also means the will and the character of a person and how it's stirred up by good and bad. So... Given these words, I thought, wow, if I go through the Bible, I want to learn about our conscience. How do I put my conscience at rest? How do I get my heart at rest? If I go and search through the Bible and do a word search, there are actually loads and loads and loads of scriptures. And I've picked out a few to learn some lessons about our conscience. So let's uh, do a bit of a journey through the Bible and learn about our conscience. The first thing about our conscience is that our conscience can be corrupted. Titus 1 verse 15 says, All is pure to those who are pure, but to those who are corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and consciences are corrupted. So it's clear from is that our conscience can be corrupted. Now, if we think about a conscience is distinguishing between good and bad and our behavior according to those values, how does our conscience get corrupted? How does that happen? Uh, Sidney Harris said, once we assuage our conscience by calling something a necessary evil, it begins to look more and more necessary and less and less evil. That's one way we corrupt our conscience, by Kind of evaluating some things like, well, maybe it's not that bad. You know, maybe, I guess, you know, not all lies are bad. Maybe a little white lie, I mean, it doesn't hurt anybody. And you know, I guess a little white lie every now and again is okay. I mean, it's, it's a less evil than, than, than a big proper lie. So 
I guess a little white lie is okay. And then the next thing you think, I wonder if that was a white lie. Maybe that's borderline. Maybe that's a gray lie. Well, it looks a bit more white to me. I think I'll call it a white lie. I think that kind of lie is okay too. That is how we corrupt our consciences, by kind of evaluating things that are evil and saying, well, it's a necessary evil. You know, I need, I need it to lie. Jeremiah, uh, if you're going to read through the book of Jeremiah, talks a lot about the nation of Israel's conscience becoming corrupted. He says things like, you know, they have no conscience. Right and wrong mean nothing to them. They stand for nothing. So our conscience becomes corrupted when, we, when, the, when the lines between good and bad gets blurred. And the concept of anything being wrong becomes like, well, I'm not so sure. Uh, everything is gray. You know, there's no black and white. You know, it's, it's not so simple. Everything is nuanced. Jeremiah says, God is ever on their lips, but far from their conscience. How does our conscience get corrupted? Now, it can happen to all of us, even to Christians. As Christians, we can allow our conscience to become corrupted. How does it happen? There's a story of, um, in the 1980s, uh, a Spanish airliner crashed into the mountains in Spain. And what happens with, uh, with, with airplanes, there's a channel on, I think it's Discovery, or one of these channels, a history channel on TV, where it's an airplane, what, air crash investigations. Where you can, if you watch that, you can see about every air crash that's investigated extensively. I mean, it takes months and years. When a plane falls or, or uh, there's any accident, it's incredible how in detail it gets investigated. Which is quite funny, actually, if you think that driving a motorbike uh, is much more dangerous than getting on an airplane. Um, but anyway, that's, that's besides the point. Uh, so this airplane crashed into the mountains in Spain. And every airplane has this thing called a black box in. And this black box records everything that happens with all the electronics in the airplane, as well as it's got microphones in the cockpit that, that records all the communications between the pilot and the co-pilot, as well as their communication with the uh, traffic, air traffic control and the passengers, etc., etc. And with this crash, when they investigated and covered the black box, they found out that moments before the crash, the aircraft's warning system actually said, uh, um, uh, 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 ground impact imminent, pull up, pull up, warning, pull up, pull up. And for some reason, the pilots thought the system was broken. Something was wrong because they looked at the altimeter and they thought the altitude was at a, a much higher level. But actually what happened is the altimeter was wrong. They should have listened to the voice that said, pull up. And why did they crash? The, the, the black box showed that after a few warnings, they switched it off and said, it must be wrong. And that's how the airplane crashed into the mountains. Now it's a tragic story, but it actually illustrates a bit what happens with how our conscience gets corrupted. When that little angel comes and sits on the shoulder or whatever you want to call it, I, I mean, I, I doubt that that's how it actually works, but you know, God does send us angels. But you know, when that inner voice speaks to you and saying, you know what, I don't think that's the right thing to do. You, know, you want to think about this? No, shut up, shush. Don't want to hear that now. When we turn off the voice that warns us, that's how our conscience gets corrupted. And we slowly drift from the good to the bad, from 
lesser evil to evil. <clears throat> it's a bit like a it's a bit like a wheelbarrow. You know, people sometimes say, "Oh, just follow your conscience." But if your conscience is a wheelbarrow, how does a wheelbarrow work? Where does a wheelbarrow go if you push it? Like, oh, I'm just following the wheelbarrow. Oh, it's going there. My conscience. Follow my conscience. Oh, the wheelbarrow is going there. I'm following my conscience. How does that work? Whoops. See what happens? <laughs> when, you, when you follow the wheelbarrow. It wasn't me. I just followed the wheelbarrow. <laughs> It's like we can say, oh, I just fo you know, just follow your conscience. But if your conscience is corrupted, then maybe it's better not to follow your conscience. So our conscience can become corrupted. Hopefully, before our conscience becomes so completely corrupted, like the people Jeremiah warned against, that says, well, God is far from them. You know, God is not even near. Hopefully, before that. At some point, our conscience can be burning. We read about this. Uh, David is a good example. Someone whose conscience was burning. Not always, but at least twice we know when his conscience bothered him. In 1 Samuel 24, when, um, when David was hiding in a cave and, and Saul was hunting him down, trying to catch him. Um, Saul went to sleep in this cave in the front of the cave, and David was hiding at the back of the cave. And guess what? It's like, and he walked, and it's like, here's David right in front of me, sleeping. And um, David got up quietly, and while Saul was sleeping, he cut off a, a, a bit of Saul's robe. And then the Bible says in First uh, Samuel 24, it says, afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off an edge of Saul's robe. You can go and read the rest of the story about how that turned out. But basically, his conscience bothered him because he said, God appointed Saul as king, and I disrespected God's appointed king. His conscience bothered him. Uh, another time, later in, uh, in 2 Samuel, towards the end of David's life, David was incited to start counting his armies and to say, how, how strong are we? You know, can we resist? And... Instead of trusting God, that God will protect them as he had always done, he was like, you know, we need to know if we are strong enough. So let's count our armies. And it says David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. And there's many other examples, but David here is an example of his conscience bothered him and he's, he was struck in his conscience. And this other example talks about our conscience burning and his conscience was seared. Sometimes our conscience burns in us. Sometimes it really bothers us in a big way. It is when our conscience is bothering us or troubling us, that's when we should faced with a choice. And that choice is, will we allow our conscience to be corrupted you know, will we allow the voice to be quiet and say, no, no, shush, don't want to hear that? Or will we try and clear our conscience? It's like a fork in the road. Which way will we go? Do I silence my conscience? Do I corrupt it? Or do I say, how can I clear my conscience? Liu Tolstoy said, the antagonism between life and conscience may be removed in two ways. 
by a change of life or by a change of conscience. So if, we, if we're standing in that fork in the road, that point of choice, where we have to decide, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to corrupt my conscience or am I going to change my life so I can clear my conscience? At least a choice we make. The good news is we don't have to allow our conscience to be corrupted. Our conscience can be cleared. There's an amazing story. I'll come back to the scriptures in a bit. Um, in, uh, in 1811, in America, someone sent a $5, five dollars in an envelope to the U.S. Treasury Department. And he said, he's really sorry. I cheated on my taxes. And I feel really guilty. He wrote a letter. He says, I feel really guilty, and this is what I owe you. You have $5. And they were like, now that is interesting. He didn't pay his tax. What do we do with this money? And after a while, the accountants decided that, okay, this is not tax money because he didn't say he's paying his taxes. He said, I'm paying this because I feel guilty. And the, 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 the government in the States established a conscience fund. And it's run by the US Treasury to this day. Um, based on that first letter and amount that they receive of five dollars, uh, and over the 175 years or more since it, well, where are we now? Almost 200 years, 210 years. I'm using old material here. <laughs> in, well, at least in this first 175 years, it, re it received more 5.7 million dollars of conscience money. People who wanted to clear their conscience. The smallest was a nine cent donation <laughs> from someone who said, uh, I took an old, a used stamp of, a, of, a, of an envelope and reused it on another, on another envelope. I did this three times. I feel really guilty. So here's nine cents to pay for this. Three times I reused this three cent stamp. <laughs> it goes up to, uh, uh, there was large amounts like $40,000. Uh, the biggest, the largest donation was in 1990, an amount of 155000 um, usually it's anonymous donors. Uh, this fund has a rule that whenever people say, I want to clear my conscience, and they send something to clear their conscience, they don't investigate it, they, don't, they let it go. They like it, well, we appreciate it, you know, we hope your conscience is clear. Sometimes people send things, like um, uh, someone sent a whole batch of handmade quilts. I say, you know, I want to clear my conscience. Here's some quilts. Like, I don't want to do that. Maybe they sell it and put the money in the fund. Or, um, one of the most frequent donations is by, by ministers and clergymen who receive deathbed confessions and some amount to send to the conscience fund. Now, imagine living your whole life to the point where you're on your deathbed and you think like, man, this thing is still bothering me. <laughs> What's, what's the last thing I'm going to do before I die? Try and clear my conscience. Not a bad thing, I guess. Um, not everybody is that sincere. Some kind of like are obviously on a, on, a, on a path clearing their conscience. You know, they're still learning. One letter said, uh, Dear Conscience Fund, I have not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. Enclosed, please find a check for a thousand dollars. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you more. <laughs> so, so, 
this one person wrote, he said, 58 years ago, I took from a railroad station an item about worth about $25. It's been on my conscience ever since. I'm enclosing a check to clear my conscience. 58 years. Wow. 58 years. How long can we live with something weighing on, weighing on our conscience? Apparently a long, long time. And I know it's true because I've lived, until I became a Christian at the age of 27, there was a lot of things weighing on my conscience at that time. Things I did as a teenager, so probably when I was between 12 and 17, 18, I think I was roughly 15, some of it. Um, so when I was 27, more than 10 years, weighing in my conscience, keeping me awake at night sometimes, bothering me, always in the back of my mind. Now this conscience fund, you know, is people trying to clear their conscience with deeds, with doing something. And sometimes doing something can help to clear our conscience. You know, deeds can help. Sometimes, you know, we help people to become Christians. We study the Bible with them and they confess, yeah, you know, I've stolen something. It's like, well, do you still have it? Yeah, well, maybe you can go and give it back. And, and they say, yeah, that's a good idea. And they go and give it back. And they feel like, oh, you know what, I'm so relieved. I feel I've cleared my conscience. But not everything can be cleared by a deed. <laughs> sometimes we can make some attempt by, you know, sometimes we, we have some bad relationships because we said some really bad things, but you know, you can't take back those words. We can try and kind of make it up and ask forgiveness and say, I'm sorry I said that, but the words, are, you can't unsay them like you give back something you stole. Some things you just cannot undo. No amount of saying or, or anything can undo it. And in Hebrews, it says, Hebrews 9 verse 9, this was a symbol for the time when then present, talking about the Old Testament laws and, and the sacrifices, when gifts and sacrifices were offered that could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's the problem with living by the law and just you know, trying to do the right thing. We can only do so many things to clear our conscience, but there's always a limit to that. We cannot fix everything. We need more. We need another way to clear our conscience. And in 1 Peter 3 verse 21, it says baptism, which corresponds to this, meaning corresponding an equivalent to Noah and the water now was saved through the water. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Repentance is important in um, repentance or changing our life, deeds, it's important. It's an important part of clearing our conscience. But there is a part that cannot be cleared. And we need God for that. We need the blood of Christ. We need the cross of Christ for a clear conscience. And I still remember the day, I don't know, stop counting, 94, what's that? I don't know, 30 something years ago? Almost 30. Um, that I was baptized. When I came out of that water, it was an amazing feeling to feel, you know what, my conscience is clear now. Not because I fixed anything, uh, everything. I fixed some things, you know, like I cheated on my taxes before I became a Christian. 
And when I started studying the Bible and seeing like, you know what, that's not what God wants, I fixed it. I went to an accountant and I said, please redo all my books for the last three years and um, tell me what I owe. And I, and I went and I paid it. A bit like the conscience fund, you know. It's like, okay, I cleared my conscience, I paid my taxes, it's all up to date. But not everything in my life was able, I was able to clear by doing something. And that act of going underwater, being baptized, going into a covenant, being united with Christ in his death, that cleared my conscience from the things that I could do nothing about. That appeal to God, God, please give me a clear conscience at this time of baptism. And it's an amazing feeling. And if you've not been baptized, I want to encourage you to maybe look into it. Come on, talk to, talk to some of the Christians in the congregation. Come talk to me afterwards about how you can get your conscience cleared in the waters of baptism. And that's a step, that's one big step to kind of clear the burden of the past, that act of you know, clearing our conscience through baptism. But then after that, sometimes our conscience still bothers us. And it's good to know that our conscience can be and must be trained. And especially as Christians, we need to train our consciences. Why? Because as Trumbull says, our conscience tells us what we ought to do right, but it does not tell us what right is. Okay, so sometimes we need to figure out. And after I became a Christian, more and more things started bothering me because I realized I didn't know that that's wrong. I can see now why it's wrong, because it's not loving. Now suddenly my conscience bothers me. So we need to train our conscience as, as Christians. The first step is, of course, to get to know the Bible, because the Bible gives us God's will, and God's will explains to us what is right, what is wrong, what should bother our conscience, and what should not bother our conscience. Solomon, that wise man, says on a, in Ecclesiastes, on a good day, enjoy yourself. You, know, you don't have to walk around with a guilty conscience all the time and feeling burdened all the time. On a good day, enjoy yourself. But on a bad day, examine your conscience. So we need to train our consciences. Malachi says, pay attention to your conscience. I'm not going to read the whole long passage now, but there's two passages in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10, where Paul talks to the Corinthians about um, feelings of guilt and, and conscience about eating food sacrificed to idols. And he says, you know, some have a weak conscience and some have a strong conscience. And if you have a strong conscience and it doesn't bother you, it's like, oh, food is food, you know, I don't care if it's been sacrificed to some Roman god or something. I can eat it okay without my violating my conscience. He says, yeah, that's a trained conscience. But you also need to recognize that some still have a weak conscience. You can imagine if you were a Roman that used to go to the temple every day and pray to all the Roman gods and sacrifice some food, and that was part of your life. If you now become a Christian, you're kind of like, in, oh, I, I want to have nothing to do with that. And someone offers you food that was sacrificed to an idol. You're like, no, 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 no. I left that behind. But over time, our conscience gets trained. It's like, you know what? You don't need to worry about that. So Paul says in that passage, those passages, in, you can go and read 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10. Um, he says, you know, some, some people's conscience is weak and the conscience needs to be trained. And if your conscience has been trained and you've got a, it's strong, then be considerate of those whose conscience is weak. Don't impose things on those with a weak conscience um, and in that way 
you know, create a burden for them. So our conscience must be trained as, as Christians. And then lastly, we can live with a clear conscience. Um, before I read, with that, read that poem to close off with. It is not prideful or arrogant or thinking better of yourself than you ought to to say, I have got a clear conscience. We see it throughout the Bible. Um, when uh, King, uh, what's his name? Is it Abimelech that, um, that took Abraham's wife into, uh, as his wife because he thought he was Abraham's sister? Um, in his defense, he said to God, did Abraham not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. I have done this with a clear conscience and with innocent hands. Then in the dream, God replied to him, yes, I know that you have done this with a clear conscience. It is not arrogant and prideful to say my conscience is clear. It just means I've been acting with integrity. I've been listening to my conscience. And when my conscience says no, then I, then I say, okay, that's no. And when I've violated my conscience, then I've confessed it and I've talked about it and I've cleared my conscience. Or I did something to fix it. Um, Job said, my conscience will not reproach me for as long as I live. Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life with a clear conscience before God to this day. Uh, another time, Paul says, I do my best to always have a clear conscience towards God and toward people. So our conscience doesn't have to bother us. We can live with a clear conscience, and that's a good thing. In fact, that's a very healthy thing. It's a very liberating thing. Mm. And it's a wonderful thing to sleep peacefully at night knowing that I have a clear conscience. I love this poem. It's called Myself. It says, I have to live with myself. And so I want to be fit for myself to know. I want to be able as days go by, always to look myself straight in the eye. I don't want to stand with the setting sun and hate myself for the things I've done. I don't want to keep on the closet shelf a lot of secrets about myself and fool myself as I come and go into thinking that nobody else will know the kind of man I really am. I don't want to dress up myself in sham. I want to go out with my head erect. I want to deserve all men's respect. But here in the struggle for fame and pelf, I want to be able to like myself. I don't want to look at myself and know that I'm bluster and bluff and empty show. I can never hide myself from me. I see what others may never see. I know what others may never know. I never can fool myself. And so, whatever happens, I want to be self-respecting and conscience-free. God has given every one of us a conscience. And he's given us a choice of how we deal with our conscience. We can allow it to be corrupted. We can allow it to drift slowly towards corruption. Or we can decide to clear it and to live with a clear conscience. I hope and trust that we can put our hearts at rest in the presence of God, as it said in John, because we know that we can have and live with a clear conscience.
options. We're going to have a communion now. And as we have communion, let's reflect on the fact that we can do our part and where we fall short, in Hebrews it says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to worship the living God. Christ died on the cross to purify our conscience. We can do our bit, and then Christ will do the rest. That is interesting. Is that, oh, is it someone's phone? That's a nice, that was a nice tune. Sounds familiar, yeah. Um, Let's reflect on the fact that, you know, whatever is your conscience, and if, you, if you're sitting here today and feel like oh, there's something in my conscience that I can do something about, talk to another Christian about it. Get it off your heart. Do what you need to do. And if there's something that you feel like helpless and like and there's nothing I can do, then the blood of Christ purifies our conscience. Let's pray for the bread and wine. Dear God, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ to be the ultimate sacrifice. The only sacrifice that can actually purify our hearts and clear and clean our conscience. As we have this bread, please bless it in our bodies. And as we have the fruit of the vine that represents the blood of Christ, please bless it and give us our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.